Okay, so this is podcast number three for nonlinear computation. So welcome back. And we will talk about computational complexity today, right? And uh, this will be a nice segue from talking about the support vector machine class of algorithms to neural networks. Uh, neural networks are oftentimes known as universal approximators, right? So I'm going to try to kind of talk about several different things that will expose you to different kinds of terminology used in machine learning, right? So neural networks are typically known as universal approximators. And um, just like any other uh, machine learning algorithm, in neural networks, what you do is you have a sample of data that is divided into a training set and a test set. And the network is trained for some time on the training set. And then you keep training it using something called gradient descent, right? Gradient descent is basically the algorithm that is used for training um, the algorithm, right? And you keep training the algorithm till the loss function uh, decreases, right? Which essentially means the algorithm makes fewer and fewer mistakes and the performance of the algorithm improves. Now, typically, when you're measuring the performance of the algorithm, you're measuring the performance of the algorithm on the test set. Right? So you're training the algorithm on the training set, but you're measuring the performance of the algorithm on the test set. Now, there are two important theoretical issues that arise in this kind of a learning framework. Right? And we will talk mostly about the second one, but the first one is also very important. Right? The first one is the sample complexity question. Right? And the second one is the computational complexity question. So we have the sample complexity question and we have the computational complexity question. Now, before we switch our focus to computational complexity, there are a few things to be learned about sample complexity. Now, sample complexity means how large should the training set be so that one can expect good performance from the learning algorithm, right, in the training phase, and then that translates to good performance on the unseen data set, that is the testing phase, right? So sample complexity is essentially a measure of how much of the training samples are needed by the algorithm so that the algorithm's output results in a small error relative to the best possible function or the best possible output, right? So it refers to the number of training samples that the algorithm needs. That is called sample complexity, right? So how large should the training set be? Now here I talked about the performance uh, in the training phase being translated to performance in the testing phase. And in general, the performance in the testing phase is very important, right? Because the algorithm has to go out into the big wide world and it has to be tested on these unseen samples. We talked about something called hold out set. And these are the unseen samples on which the model has to be tested. Now, typically in order to do this, there are uh, several methods. Let's just at a high level talk about two things. One is the train test process. So what you do is you have the training set, which is typically the larger majority of the samples. So say if you have 100% as the total, you train on 70% and then you test on 30%. And then basically what performance you get on that testing data set is uh, the performance you're really interested in, right? Because it tells you that you have not 
done training to such an extent that the model is overfitting, right? So you have trained it just enough so that when you expose the model to the nuances of the test data set, it is performing well enough. Now, one of the things that happens is although you're training on a larger portion of the data set typically, and testing on a smaller portion so that you're exposing the algorithm to the nuances of the training data set. One of the things that may happen in this process is that the idiosyncrasies or the nuances of the data set that is there in the training data set may be missing in the test data set and vice versa. So you might actually pick up idiosyncrasies in the training data set which are not relevant to the test data set. And this kind of comes from uh, something that we talked about in the past that you kind of want to make sure that the distribution of the data samples for the training and, and the test data set are kind of the same, right? Or similar rather. But this is possibly not always the case. And you might have corner cases or nuances or idiosyncrasies that are present either in the training data set or in the test data set, but not in both. Right? So one of the problems with this train test method of being able to decrease uh, the error on the test data set is that there might be differences in the train and test data set. So the way we circumvent this is something called cross-validation. And we will talk about cross-validation in a later episode, but I just wanted to bring this in, that uh, one of the ways in which you decrease the error on the test data set is by using something called cross-validation, right? And um, we will have a separate uh, section uh, episode, whether a podcast or slides or both on cross-validation, because that is very important. But all of this is related to how to improve the performance of the model on the test data set, which is kind of important because that is when the model is out in the wild. Now, backtracking to our original uh, two important theoretical issues that arise in the learning framework, one is sample complexity. And that's how we landed to this, right? We talked about how much of the training data set is needed so that we can expect good performance in the training phase, which is actually translated to good performance in the testing phase. Now, the other one is computational complexity. And computational complexity refers to the amount of computational effort that is required to achieve good performance in the training phase in the first place. And then again, uh, there might also be an inferencing step that has, you know, uh, computational complexity or in terms of runtime of the inference phase, right? So you have the training phase and you have the inference phase. And typically the training phase is more computationally cumbersome, right? So typically we are generally talking about the computational effort needed in the training phase, right? So another way to put it is computational complexity refers to the amount of resources that are required to run the algorithm. Right? And there are two variants of it, or it can be thought of in two different ways, which are equally important. One is time complexity, and another is space or memory complexity. Right? And one of the things that happens commonly is that when people talk about computational complexity, they're typically referring to time complexity. That's just typically the default, although space complexity is equally important. 
But today, most of the stuff that we will talk about will be around time complexity, just so that we have a concise episode, right? Another thing to keep in mind is when we talk about computational complexity in computer science, complexity analysis typically refers to the worst case complexity, right? So it's a worst case analysis. So big O analysis, when we're talking about that, it is typically the worst case analysis, right? So we talked about um, sample complexity and we talked about computational complexity. And now we are in the ambit of computational complexity. Within computational complexity, there is time complexity and space complexity. Space complexity refers to the memory required by the algorithm. And now we are focusing on the time complexity. And in general, overall, when we're talking about computational complexity, whether time or memory complexity, it is typically the worst case analysis. And this is referred to by big O. Right, and it's actually written uh, with a big O. And you sometimes, when you spell it out, you say B-I-G. OH. So in general, the idea is that computers are fast, but some problems can take a very long time to solve by computers, right? So this is where uh, the complexity uh, theory came from. And uh, complexity theory, which is also known as the computational complexity theory, it focuses on classifying problems by difficulty. Right? And there are multiple classifications. So for example, uh, two of the most popular classifications, they come from the letter P that refers to polynomial and the letters N and P that refer to non-deterministic polynomial. Right? So P that is for polynomial and capital N, capital P that is for non-deterministic polynomial. Another uh, related thing is NP-complete, right? And uh, two more I'll talk about is NP-hard and EXP, right? So um, not talking about all the classifications, there are multiple classifications, but just kind of limiting ourselves to P, which is polynomial, NP, that is non-deterministic polynomial, NP-complete, NP-hard, and EXP, right? So uh, just going through them. Uh, so P that is polynomial, right? So polynomials, they employ only addition, subtraction, multiplication. These are simpler problems. And most of the problems that we are asked to solve, they are not in P, right? They are not in polynomial time. And these scale linearly as the inputs scale, right? So the polynomial problems, they scale linearly as the input scale. Now, in contrast, NP, like I said, are non-deterministic polynomial. And these are problems that are solvable in P time given a non-deterministic algorithm, right? So a problem is classified in NP time if it can be solved in exponential time, but verified in polynomial time. And solvable in polynomial time by non-deterministic methods. So I repeat, a problem is classified um, as being in NP time, if it is solved in exponential time, but verified in polynomial time, 
and solvable in polynomial time by non-deterministic methods, right? So these are the problems that we deal with on a daily basis, the non-deterministic polynomial time problems as opposed to the polynomial time problems. So a little bit of history here. It is uh, thought that the origins of this uh, P and NP clauses, they actually originated from a letter that Goodell wrote to von Neumann in 1956. So Goodell was a great uh, logician of the 20th century. And uh, of course, von Neumann is a computer pioneer and he came up with the von Neumann architecture. Right. So uh, a letter written by Goodell to von Neumann on 20th March 1956. This was written um, in Princeton. And that letter was uh, very sagacious in that it is kind of called the P versus NP letter, where he asked, Goodell asked von Neumann that, um, you know, suppose we have a machine and the machine can tell whether a mathematical statement has a proof of length n. How much time does the machine need? So it's kind of like um, uh, problem-solving uh, conjecture. So he didn't call it the computer. Goodell did not call it the computer. Goodell is spelled G-O, on top of O you have the umlaut, D-E-L. So what he asked von Neumann is that suppose we have a machine and the machine can tell whether a mathematical statement has a proof of length n, how much time does the machine need to do this? Right? Um, so this was essentially the kind of the origins of the P versus NP problem. And uh, this is still an unsolved problem in mathematics. And I think I alluded to it in one of the earlier lectures. Most uh, mathematicians, they believe that P is not equal to NP, right? But that cannot be proven. So this P versus NP problem is considered to be one of the clay millennium problems, right? As opposed to the Hilbert problems of the earlier century. Uh, there, these are the clay millennium problems. And it's kind of considered the holy grail, this P versus NP. So it is thought by most uh, mathematicians that P is not equal to N NP. Whereas, you know, this is hard to prove that whether P is equal to NP or P is not equal to NP. So so these are basically the different complexity clauses. And these are kind of considered to be the conjectured clauses because things change oftentimes. So two problems that are within the realm of NP are clique, C-L-I-Q-U-E, and factoring. These two problems are within the realm of NP. Whereas P, like I said, are polynomial time problems, and you don't find them as commonly. They're the simpler problems. So for example, multiplication is a polynomial time problem, right? And examples of NP problems are, for example, clique, which is considered to be the granddad of NP problems. It's a canonical NP problem. Another one is factoring, 
So clique, for example, you know, if you think of social networks or any kind of network, like gene regulatory networks or whatever. Um, so you basically have, if you can connect, so remember we talked a little bit about graph theory, where the nodes are the points and then you have connections between the nodes, right, as edges, right? So if you can connect all of these different nodes. So for example, I want to see in an, a department uh, how many uh, of the professors they collaborate with each other. So each of the professors, they're going to be nodes. And then if there is collaboration between two professors, that's going to be an edge between the nodes. So if you can connect all the professors, say all the professors, they collaborate with all the other professors, then it's going to be kind of a clique. So I urge you to look that up. It's kind of hard to explain that in a podcast format um, concisely. But if you look up a clique, C-L-I-Q-U-E, so if you're trying to find the cliques, right, that is an example of uh, NP problem, right? Another example of an NP problem is factoring. Right. So if I give you a very large number and if you have to find the factors of the two numbers. So, for example, two times three is six. But if I give you six and I ask you to give me the factors, they're going to be two and three. But in this case, it is a very small number. Six is a small number. But if I give you a really large number and I ask you to factorize that number, that's going to be an example of an NP problem. And then if you have a problem which is even harder, uh, an example is optimal games, which is not an NP type searching problem. So it, it is basically harder than an NP problem, right? So basically the way the complexity classes are conjectured, conjectured is you have say a big uh, circle that is NP, within that you'll have P, and outside that you'll have these harder problems such as optimal games. Right. Um, so not getting too much into it because it's kind of outside the scope of the class. But I kind of wanted to give you an idea of different complexity classes. And because you will see that uh, quite a bit. In fact, P versus NP comes up quite a bit in computer science. Right. And clique is one of the canonical NP problems. Now, for the clique problem, a little um, nuance there is if I ask you to find the largest possible clique in a big uh, graph, right? That is a harder problem than if I ask you to find a clique of a target size, right? So if I ask you to find a clique with five nodes, right? That is easier than if I ask you to find the largest possible clique. So the clique of target size is the one that is NP. But for our purposes, both of these are closely related computational problems. So just to specify when I say the clique problem is NP, it is finding the clique of a target size. Now, another quirky fact here is uh, something related to something called NP completeness. Now, I said uh, I talked to you about the clique problem and the factoring problem. Now, although these two problems are very different, uh, these two problems are actually linked to one another. And how is that? So if you have a factoring problem, and if you consider that there is a transformer of sorts, then if you basically can solve a factoring problem, then you can solve the clique problem as well. Right? So you can solve the clique problem by solving the factoring problem. So it's kind of esoteric to think about this, but just to back up again, if you solve a factoring problem, 
you can also solve the clique problem. So although these two problems are not related, uh, this, these two problems are actually linked to one another. But the thing to keep in mind is the reverse transformation is not known to be true, right? So we don't know how to convert the clique problem to the factoring problem, but we know how to convert the factoring problem to the clique problem, right? So if we solve the clique problem, we solve the factoring problem. But not only that, if we solve the clique problem, we can solve any NP problem. That is how clique problem, the clique problem is known as the granddad of NP problems. And this is not just a property of the clique problem. There are other problems that are also of this kind, right? Such that if you solve th these problems, such as the clique problem, you will solve any NP problem. And this is what is known as NP completeness, right? So again, to repeat, if you solve the clique problem, you're solving the factoring problem, but you're also solving any other NP problem. So the clique problem is therefore uh, a NP complete problem. And NP completeness is not just for the clique problem. There are other problems that are also NP-complete, but clique is considered to be a very popular example of this class. So if you ever come across something called NP-completeness, I kind of wanted you to have some idea of what that means, right? So again, one of the things that has not been solved yet is whether P is equal to NP, although it is believed that P is not equal to NP, but this has not been proven. Now, another thing to keep in mind about these NP problems is it's hard to solve them, right? But once you get the answer, you can check them really easily. So just to give you an example, so if it is, consider uh, six being factorized into two and three, right? So this is a very small number, but if you think of a really large number, once you arrive at the factors of that number, it is really easy to check that you have arrived at the right answer by multiplying the two factors, right? But it is hard to solve the problem by searching, right? So such a problem is called an NP problem. But if something is even harder than an NP type searching problem, right? Then it basically means it's not checkable. So even after you have solved it, if you cannot check it, then it is not an NP-type searching problem. An example of that is the optimal game strategy, right? So think of uh, playing chess. I'm not gonna go into too much depth, but that's gonna be harder than an NP-type searching problem. Now you'll notice that I'm using the word searching, right? So if you think of like literally a needle in a haystack, now looking for the needle in the haystack is really hard, right? So it's like a really hard problem. It's a really hard, literally searching problem. But say if you bring a magnet close to the haystack, right? A really powerful magnet, then it can come up with a way to circumvent that searching problem, right? So when you think of the NP problems, these are the problems that require searching, but we don't know how to prove that they require searching because it's possible that you come up with a way to prevent that searching step, 
right? So I gave you an example where you have a needle in a haystack and you circumvent the searching problem by bringing in a really powerful magnet. So one of the things about these NP problems is that many of these problems that require searching, such as the NP problems, but we cannot prove that they require searching, right? Because it's possible that you come up with a solution that basically circumvents the search process, right? Like I gave you the example of the needle in the haystack, right? So I'm kind of going slow because a lot of this is kind of um, harder to understand, right? And it's a podcast format, but I still kind of want you to have some idea of computational complexity and P uh, equals or not equals NP. And the other thing that I mentioned is that if it, this is not checkable, so for NP, it is checkable, you solve by searching and then you can check the answer really quickly. But if it is not checkable, then the searching problem is worse than NP, right? So this is uh, where this optimal game strategy falls, right? So if you think of a chess game, right? So if you can think of a game tree of all possible games that can be played, right? It's an astronomically big number, right? Which can basically be longer than the life of the universe, right? Uh, so if you can think of a game strategy related, like the optimal game strategy related problems, these are harder than NP. So the searching problem in this case is worse than NP because even after you solve it, if you could solve it, these are not checkable. So you cannot check if you arrived at the right answer, unlike an NP problem. So these are harder than the NP problem when you think of the complexity class of this problem. So remember I said conjectured that these complexity classes are kind of conjectured because a lot of this is not proven. And one of the interesting examples that I came up with, uh, I'll see if I can explain this in a podcast format. If not, I'm going to write it out in the podcast notes, right? So something called primality. Right. So earlier, uh, primality was thought to be a harder problem. Right. I think before 2002, it was thought to be a harder problem. Primality meaning whether a number is a prime number or not. So before 2002, it was considered to be a randomized polynomial time problem. But now it is one step lower in the hierarchy. That is, it's a polynomial time problem. And let me see if I can explain this to you with an example. Right? So you know what a prime number is, right? For example, a prime number is the number seven, right? So think of this property uh, for a prime number P and for a number, let's say A less than P, A raised to P minus one is equal to one modulo P. Right? This is kind of harder to explain without an example. Right? So let us consider P is equal to 7 and A is equal to 2. Right? Now A raised to P minus 1, meaning 2 raised to 6, which is equal to 64. Right? Now 64 divided by P, which is 7, has a remainder 1. So modulo meaning what is the remainder when you divide, right? So I'm going to have this example in the podcast notes so that you can see this. But essentially, uh, it was shown that the property of a prime number is this. So the way to prove that 
a number is a prime or not a prime is by seeing if the number satisfies this property. So because there was this proof for primality by seeing whether the prime number satisfies this property, the this class of problems of solving whether or not a number is a prime or not, which is called a primality problem, it became a polynomial time complexity problem, reduced uh, or one step lower in the hierarchy from RP, which is the randomized polynomial time problem before 2002, when this property of prime numbers was discovered. And that's how when I say the conjectured picture about a lot of this is because what is known at this time, right? Before 2002, the primality problem was considered to be a more complex problem, right? So when you have these complex problems, one of the ways to circumvent these computational complexity, these high com computational complexity problems would be, for example, an approximate solution for the problem. Right? So there are ways in which you can um, you know, circumvent the computational complexity of the problem. Right? And also something that you typically try doing is you try to come up with a way to decrease the complexity of the problem. Right? So let me give you an example. And even before I give you an example, why are we talking about this? Right? The reason we are talking about this is when you have any machine learning code, or any code for that matter, any algorithm for that matter, Right? We talked about algorithms in general in podcast one. Right? So for any algorithm to run efficiently, you kind of want it to scale. And here, when we're talking about scale, we are talking in the realm of you know, uh, time and space complexity. And we're talking about a single processor time, right? not scaling across multiple machines. Remember, we talked about horizontal scaling and vertical scaling, where horizontal scaling is scaling across multiple machines using a distributed form of the algorithm. So we're not talking about that kind of scale, but we're talking about scale in terms of a single processor time. Right. So or the, uh, if we talk about space complexity in terms of primary memory. Right. So one of the reasons we want to see um, this uh, complexity of the algorithm is we want to see how well the algorithm can scale. Right. In terms of the single processor time or the primary memory. And that enables us to predict the performance of the algorithms. Right. And by knowing this big O complexity, we basically know the worst case complexity or the upper bound of the runtime, for example, for the time complexity of that algorithm. Right. Now, there is something called the big O cheat sheet. So I'm going to put that in my podcast notes. And again, if you want to kind of get into it a little uh, deeper, you can see this big O cheat sheet. And basically what happens is as you go more and more into the red zone, the runtime increases or the complexity of the algorithm increases, right? So if, if the big O, if you have a constant time operation, which is very quick, fast operations, uh, these have a big O of one, right? Whereas if you have order N operations, where um, you have a big O of N, then the growth rate is kind of as if the line goes up as uh, in 45 degree. So it's a nice 45 degree angle in which the algorithm goes up, right? So uh, order of n uh, or big O of n, meaning it is uh, linearly growing, right? In linear time, right? Uh, the next one, which is basically increasing order of complexity is big O of log n. 
and big old log n is also kind of okay where you basically have something called divide and conquer. So I gave you an example of that cascade SVM in our uh, video lecture last time, right? Where one way of being able to circumvent the computational complexity of an algorithm is to divide and conquer. And oftentimes what you do is by doing that, you're decreasing the complexity of the algorithm to log n. Right? So uh, say from n square, um, you can decrease the complexity of the algorithm to log n, just to give you an example. Right? So if you look at the big O cheat sheet um, in the website bigocheatsheet.com, you'll see uh, they'll give you examples of different kinds of algorithms, not just machine learning algorithms, um, in terms of the computational complexity of the algorithms. Right. So just to sum up, we talked about um, the complexity theory, um, basically, which means uh, the computational complexity theory. It gives you an idea of the runtime of the algorithms because we focused mostly on the time complexity. And we talked about uh, P and NP classes. Right. And we also talked about NP completeness. Right. The clique problem, C-L-I-Q-U-E. Right? Uh, so certain problems, they really require searching, but it is hard to prove that they require searching. So these are the NP problems, right? But I told you one of the reasons just to kind of help you figure out why it is hard to prove that they require searching is that if you can think of the needle in the haystack, literally, so you would have to search for the needle, right? But if you can come up with a smart way of coming up with a really powerful magnet that can attract the needle, then you circumvent the search process, right? So similarly, for the NP class of problems, it is known that they require searching, but it is not proven that they require searching. So it's really hard to prove that they require searching. And one of the things is that if you can solve the NP class of problems, they are easily checkable, right? Whereas the ones that are harder than the NP class of problems, they are even hard to check even after you solve them, if you could, right? And the ones that are easy ones, right, the polynomial time problems, those are the ones that are easily solvable. So if you can think of the P and NP classes, right, so the P class is easily solvable. Examples are, for example, multiplication or sorting. Whereas the NP class is not easily solvable, but is easily checkable. And we also talked about the concept of NP completeness. And uh, the granddad of NP class of problems is the clique problem, right? Um, and then we also talked about the big O notation, which stands for the computational complexity. And there are multiple classifications there. Right. So we talked about, for example, the order of n. Um, before that, you have the simplest one, of course, the constant time operation, which is order of one, which are very quick and very fast operations. And then you have order of n uh, and then you have order of log n, which are typically the divide and conquer ones. Right. And the really um, hard to solve ones, they may take exponential time. So basically, the ones that take exponential time, they're really hard to solve. So you have uh, polynomial time and the worst ones are the exponential time ones. And then you can look up the Big O Cheat Sheet at BigOCheatSheet.com. So next time, we will try to touch upon some um, 
you know, quirky things. For example, the model complexity myth, right? So can you fit models with more parameters than the data points, right? So that does not sound ideal, right? If you have too many parameters, what you typically do is you want to uh, regularize it, right? You want to regularize the model so that the model does not have too many parameters. And uh, common ways to do that is using ridge regression and using lasso regression. So we will actually cover those. So let me take a few minutes to just introduce that to you. So, um, Common ways in which you regularize models, such as regression models, are by using ridge regression and lasso regression, right? Essentially what you do is you penalize the model for using too many parameters. And the word that is used is you basically favor parsimony, right? So you want parsimonious models, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y. So you're regularizing the models because you want parsimony. So you want the least number of parameters that give you a good performance for the model. And something that you typically use for that is ridge regression and lasso regression. And essentially what you're doing using these processes, uh, such as regularization, it's called complexity regularization to be more specific, is that you are basically uh, controlling between the goodness of fit of the model, right? and the complexity regularization, right? So while you want good performance, that is the goodness of fit, you're basically balancing that against the number of parameters that are used for this goodness of fit, right? And I know in the past, you know, uh, folks have wanted to know a little bit about the Bayesian process, right? So when you have everything we've talked about mostly so far is within the realm of frequentist uh, processes, right? So for example, the regularization that I talked about, the ridge regularization, uh, the loss of regularization, these are the frequentist uh, conditioning processes, This, or rather the frequentist approach, right? So in the frequentist approach, this type of conditioning is known as regularization, where the motivation is to penalize large values of model parameters. Right? So if you have large values of model parameters or large numbers of model parameters, you basically want to penalize that. Right? And this is kind of uh, under the realm of the frequentist approach, right? F-R-E-Q-U-E-N-T-I-S-T. This as opposed to the Bayesian approach. So just to give you a little bit of an introduction to the Bayesian approach is in the Bayesian approach, the way you do this, the way you uh, you know, decrease overfitting is by using something called priors, right? So uh, you have priors and then you have the Bayesian posterior probability, right? So the way to do Bayesian conditioning as opposed to frequentist conditioning is by using Bayesian priors, right? Just to give you a quick example of the Bayesian priors thing. So if you basically want the model to converge faster and using lesser number of parameters, what you do is you give the model some initial information, right? So for example, if the teacher walks into the class and you know that the teacher is, um, although uh, he or she is a high school teacher, uh, he or she is a PhD in astrophysics, right? Uh, versus there is another teacher who is, uh, you know, possibly not a PhD, um, but, you know, a bachelor's degree holder. 
So for whatever reason, the students know that, you know, teacher A is a PhD in astrophysics and teacher B is a bachelor's degree holder, right? So they know that uh, teacher A has had more education and is possibly a better teacher, right? So this is the prior information that they hold, right? And based on the uh, learning process that happens, it might happen that teacher B is actually a better teacher. So ultimately, it may happen that teacher B uh, gets higher reviews because teacher B performs better as a teacher. But the students just had the information about the degree um, that the two teachers hold when the teacher came in, right? So that is the prior information. But after the learning process happens, it's possible that the posterior um, uh, that is after the prior uh, is over, the posterior learning that happens, right? Uh, that gives a different kind of uh, uh, opinion, right? That the teacher with uh, the bachelor's degree is actually a better teacher, right? So that is kind of uh, the idea of Bayesian conditioning versus frequentist conditioning. In frequentist conditioning, you use regularization, whereas in Bayesian conditioning, you use something called Gaussian priors, right? So with that, uh, this podcast is becoming too long. I'm going to stop there. That gives you an idea of, you know, the different kinds of complexity, sample complexity and model complexity. Uh, and then even uh, under uh, model complexity or computational complexity, rather, you have uh, time and space complexity. And then we talked about um, NP completeness and P not equal to NP. And then we talked a little bit about um, the different classes of complexity. That's it.